0: Heavenly Father, thank you that we do have this opportunity tonight to gather. Thank you for bringing me here safely on my travels. Thank you for so many others who have been able to join us tonight and for our opportunity to lift everybody up who needed prayer. And for even those who didn't have the opportunity, Father, we know that you are already mindful of their needs, and we do place those in your hands. Thank you, Father, for the time in your word. Let our study of things old inform us of things new. And let us appreciate the work that you have done, knowing the end from the beginning and having orchestrated all things to come to their appointed end. We can see, Father, that so clearly in even these details of a building that you commissioned to be built so many years ago. Let it remind us, Father, that you are sovereignly working all things to good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the next section we study in Exodus, as I said, runs until chapter 31, and it consists of the instructions for the building of the Lord's sanctuary called the tabernacle. The tabernacle was, for its size, perhaps the most expensive building ever constructed. It was remarkably small. In fact, it was barely the size of a modest bedroom and an average-sized living room. I think as you study it with me tonight and see some photos, you're going to be surprised at just how small the tabernacle was and how small many of the elements within the tabernacle truly are. I think our minds tend to imagine it must have been grand, but I think you'll find it was nothing of that sort, not in terms of size, but it certainly was in terms of materials because though it was small, it was constructed out of the most valuable materials of the day. Some have estimated that it cost two million dollars to build in Moses's day. That would be an extraordinary amount in today's dollars. There'll be quite a few visuals to accompany the teaching tonight, particularly when we're looking at the tabernacle itself. It's going to help a lot, I think, for you to see things that will help put in your mind what's written on the page. I encourage you to pay attention tonight and if you study after this to grab these off the website. The tabernacle is also, and this should be no surprise, I hope, to anyone It is also a remarkable picture of Christ and of God's work of redemption through his son. Last time we met, we heard the Lord telling Moses that he was to follow a precise pattern as he shows Moses what to build. And we read that in Exodus 25, verse nine, where it said, according to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. So Moses not only heard the instructions God gave him, but as we're going to see later in verse 40, Moses also was given a vision of the finished building so that he had something in his memory to guide him by as he went to construct it. So when he was on the mountain, God actually showed him what the building should look like. That would help explain, for example, why he built it the way he did, even though in the directions there aren't necessarily Enough details in some cases for us to work out the exact way to build it. So although he built it properly, we couldn't necessarily repeat that today, even with the instructions in excess. We get close, of course, but we'd miss some details that he knew from sight. Hebrews 9, 8 tells us this, that when finished, the tabernacle itself becomes a pattern of something greater. Hebrews 9, verses 8 and 9 says this, The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. The word for symbol in verse nine is also the word for type or picture. So the tabernacle, according to the writer of Hebrews, was for a time to be a symbol of something, a type or a picture of something. And that thing was of Christ and of the work of Christ. So as we study the construction of the tabernacle and its furniture and all the materials and so on and its purpose, we're also going to study the design as a type, specifically of Christ. Now, let's understand what a type is and what it's not. A type is a divinely intended parallel between some lesser form and its greater fulfillment. The building is so rich in details that we're going to study, of course, that it is very easy to get carried away with typology and imagine that everything is a type of Christ. Now, there may be many things in the construction of the tabernacle which are useful illustrations of Christ or of his work, but there are only a handful of direct comparisons given in the New Testament, which we can then definitively say are types. For example, we know that in other places of the Old Testament, Isaac is called a type of Christ in the way that he was taken up by his father to be on the mountain and be sacrificed, which foretells or pictures Christ's own sacrifice when he was taken up onto the cross. And the New Testament gives us that specific application. It calls Isaac a type in the book of Hebrews. But the New Testament never specifically says that his father Abraham is a type of the father in that relationship. So you can't call Abraham a type of the father just because his son in that story is a type of Christ, because the New Testament never gives us that parallel. On the other hand, we could say that Abraham serves as a useful illustration of the way the father took his son and sacrificed him for our sake. Is that a difference without distinction? Perhaps so, but let's be at least careful to be literal to what we mean when we say type. A type is something the New Testament has told us was divinely intended to be a parallel from old to new. We can find many illustrations. We only have a few types. So we're going to point out the illustrations in the details of the tabernacle. And even if they aren't mentioned in the New Testament, perhaps they're all divinely intended. And that's why we're seeing them. But we'll be honest to what the book says. Finally, it's worth noting that the pattern used to construct the tabernacle, which made the tabernacle itself a pattern of Christ, is itself based on another structure, a heavenly structure. In other words, what we have on earth is itself patterned after a greater building that has yet to show itself to us on earth, the heavenly tabernacle. The writer of Hebrews tells us this in Hebrews chapter eight, verse one. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister, listen, in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. So there is a structure called a heavenly tabernacle in which Christ is presently occupying, serving as our high priest. And the one we know here on earth is a shadow of it. Hebrews 8 goes on in verse 4 and 5 to say, Now if Christ were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, God says, see that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Putting all of this together, it would seem as though God gave Moses a view of the heavenly tabernacle and was told to follow the instructions carefully so as to make a pattern of it on earth. So when we look upon the things we're going to study tonight and in the next few nights, we'll be looking at a small scale model, if you will, of something that exists today in heaven, which is the heavenly tabernacle. So Israel is told to collect an offering in the first part of chapter 25 from those who are moved by the spirit. And from that offering, that contribution would become the source of material to build the tabernacle. And from these materials, Moses is instructed to build something very unique for the Lord. There are Three primary purposes why God instructs Moses to build this building. And that's where we're going to start tonight. From these materials, he's told to build this structure for three reasons. First, the tabernacle is to be the dwelling place of God on earth during the dispensation of law. The Hebrew word for dwell in verse eight is Shakan, from which you get the word Shekinah, as in Shekinah glory. The Shekinah glory of God is the visible presence of God among his people. Since the fall of man in the garden, God's presence has only been manifested to man for moments, in accordance with God's purposes, for a time, and then it would leave or it would move or it would not be available for, at times, centuries. But now, starting with the law, the Lord desires a physical place on earth in which his glory will reside continuously. The tabernacle was to be the continuous dwelling place of God's Shekinah glory on earth. Now, the tabernacle is not the only place on earth that God was present. God is all spirit. He is therefore not localized to a single place. He is all the time everywhere by spirit. But the tabernacle was the one and only place on earth where God chose to manifest his glory to man on a continuous basis. In the Old Testament law, the nation of Israel was warned That if a man attempted to sacrifice to the Lord outside of the tabernacle, then he would be punished. You see that in Leviticus 17, verse three. Any man from the house of Israel who slaughters an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or who slaughters it outside the camp and has not brought it to the doorway of the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord Blood guiltiness is to be reckoned on that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. God has said, I'm going to dwell in one place, my tabernacle. That will be where my glory will reside. And if you were to take an opportunity to sacrifice anywhere else instead of coming to the tabernacle, then you would be cut off from your people. The New Testament teaches that Christ is the one and only manifestation of the Father's glory on earth. Acts 4.12 Peter says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. The message in this requirement is clear. God sets the manner by which men will find him. And any attempt by man to seek God on their own terms or outside his provision will result in judgment. Just as Christ is the only way to the father, John 14:6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So the dwelling place of God in the form of the tabernacle established not just that he was visible and manifest, but it also established the one and only place you could find him. And seeking him otherwise only brings judgment. Secondly, the tabernacle was the Lord's sanctuary, according to verse 8 in chapter 25. The word sanctuary just means a holy place set apart. In this case, it is a place set apart from sin. Consider God's challenge if he is to dwell on a sinful earth and yet have nothing to do with sin. He must establish holy ground, just as when he met with Moses and said, take off your sandals, the ground on which you stand is holy. It was holy because of God's presence, having made it so. And so the tabernacle becomes a place set apart from sin in the world. And in so doing, it becomes his sanctuary, his holy retreat from the sin of the world. This is also an illustration of Christ. Christ was the sinless sanctuary of the Father on earth. John says in John 1, 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Greek word for dwell in John 1.14 is the same Greek word as the word for tabernacle. So Christ was God the Father tabernacling among men. Jesus essentially in his physical form became a sanctuary for the perfect sinless nature of God. In the way that this building performed as well for a time. Paul said in Colossians 119, for it was the father's good pleasure for all his fullness to dwell in him in Christ. And John again says in first John three, five, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. Finally, the tabernacle is sometimes called the tent of meeting, for that was its third purpose. The tabernacle became the place where God could condescend to meet with man. The men of Israel gathered in the tent according to God's ordinances. The tabernacle allowed Israel to draw near to God through the high priest of Israel, who then interceded on behalf of the people of Israel. Once again, you find not only an illustration in this case, but according to the New Testament, an actual type of Christ explained by the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 7:25. Speaking of Christ, he says, therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So the very fact that God called the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, says two things about its purpose. First, that it was the place where meeting could take place or could be facilitated. But the fact also that it's a tent implies that it will be a temporary way to meet God. It is not the permanent solution. It is a temporary solution. It was temporary because, as the writer of Hebrews explained, it was to eventually be replaced by the work of Christ. And even the magnificent temple that was eventually built by Herod was temporary for the same reason that this tent was temporary. And even though that building was far more magnificent and seemed permanent, remember what its fate was. Jesus even told us of that in Luke 21, 5. While some were talking about the temple and that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, Jesus said, as for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another, which will not be torn down. So even though it looked permanent, Jesus reminded them, no, all of this has to pass because it is not the ultimate solution, the ultimate means by which men will meet with God. That will be Christ himself. So. Now we're done with the purposes. We need to begin examining the details of this elaborate yet temporary structure, starting with the key pieces of furniture. And that's the order in which it's described. You'll notice in the text that there are first in this chapter descriptions of furniture within the t- tabernacle before we actually get to a description of the tabernacle itself. Altogether, we're going to find seven pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. Seven exactly with some being described in this chapter, others are described later in the chapters that follow. Now, as you read with me the description of these items and and the items that are listed here, the furnishings specifically, notice the order in which the items are called out in the text. The descriptions proceed outward from the most important part of the tabernacle Outward to the rest of the tabernacle, starting with the Holy of Holies and with the most important piece of furniture in the whole tabernacle, which is the Ark of the Covenant. The point in that ordering is to make clear that God's presence was at the heart of the purpose and the meaning of the tabernacle. Everything else is connected to that presence. If God's presence is not there, the rest of the building would have no meaning or purpose. So from the center of it outward, the building is described. Verse 10 is where we go now, verses 10 through 22. They shall construct an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide and one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it and you shall make a gold molding around it. You shall cast four gold rings for it and fasten them on its four feet and two rings shall be on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark with them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be removed from it. You shall put into the ark the testimony which I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits long and one and a half cubits wide. You shall make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub. At one end and one cherub at the other end, you shall make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat at its two ends. The cherubim shall have their wings spread upward, covering the mercy seat and with their wings and facing one another. The faces of the cherubim are to be turned toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark and in the ark you shall put the testimony which I will give you. There I will meet with you. From above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are upon the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. So the first item described is the Ark of the Covenant. Now that's an item that has been made even more famous, if that were possible, by the Indiana Jones movies. And in fact, if you want the full set, with Kung Fu grip. On the Indiana Jones. Now, careful students should notice what's wrong with their depiction of the ark. The poles are not overlaid with gold is the most clear mistake they've made, right? The rest of it is subject to interpretation. We heard the ark was made of acacia wood and covered in pure gold inside and out. Like the rest of the structure, though, the ark itself is not very large, but it is very ornate. It's only about three feet, nine inches long, only about a little over two feet high and two feet wide, a little over two feet wide. And then it had rings of gold on the corners. It's basically about an average size coffee table. The rings were used in conjunction with those rods, as we note on this picture here, to carry the ark without actually touching the ark because it was never to be touched by human hands. In fact, one time... In the history of Israel, we know of a time when a well-intentioned Israelite dared to touch the ark. And as he did, he faced a terrible end. It comes in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 4. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadad which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Azua reached out and touched the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark of God. Now, inside the ark, we're told that the Israelites eventually placed three items. We hear of one in this chapter that is the testimony that refers to the tablets, the tablets on which Moses received the Ten Commandments. And they are inside this ark. Now, I want you to consider, given the size of the ark, how small the tablets were. Later, the Lord will instruct Israel to add a jar of manna and to add the budding staff of Aaron. All three of these elements picture Christ. The sinless Christ who will judge all men is represented by the law. The bread of life that comes down from heaven, as we already know, is represented in the manna. And the rejected branch that shoots forth from the stem of Jesse, returning from death to life, is pictured in that budding staff of Aaron. Now, on top of the ark was a lid. This lid, or mercy seat, as it was called in the text is the most important place in all of the tabernacle overall. It's made of pure gold, no wood in the lid, and it was called a place of propitiation, which is simply a word that means to satisfy the wrath of God, to appease the wrath of God. Over the mercy seat, once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood of a goat over this seat, over the lid of the ark. That act satisfied the wrath of God against the sin of Israel under the old covenant, under the law. But the Day of Atonement was not a permanent propitiation, nor did it propitiate for personal sin, for the sin of an individual person. The nation of Israel was not going to heaven because once a year the high priest walked in and did this for the sake of the nation. It served only to temporarily appease the wrath of God against the nation as a whole for their national sins under the terms of the Old Covenant. But only by personal faith in Christ's propitiation by his blood could a person individually receive forgiveness and be saved by that propitiation. Only by the blood of Christ can we fully satisfy the wrath of God. So... Even though the national sins of Israel were being forgiven on this basis once a year, it's still required that for the individual they have a faith and trust in the propitiation God would make available through the Messiah for them to receive personal forgiveness from sin and entry into heaven. One did not replace the other. They worked in different ways for different purposes. That's why Paul can say in Romans that it's always been by faith that men would be saved. This is why there's two days in the Jewish calendar When national sacrifices are made under the law, first, there is the sacrifice of a lamb on Passover. Now, what does a lamb symbolize? Lamb symbolizes the innocence of Christ, that Christ died without sin so that he could serve as an atoning sacrifice or a substitute on our behalf. But then secondly, at a different point in the year, there's a sacrifice of a goat on the day of atonement. Now, actually, there's two goats. There's the goat that is let out from the city. That's the scapegoat on which the sins of Israel are placed. And it's sent out from the city never to return, symbolizing that the sin of Israel has gone away from God and is not brought back upon them. Then the second goat was taken into the tabernacle and was sacrificed at the altar. That symbolized God pouring out his wrath on a substitute who received wrath for sin. That's why in Scripture you have sheep and goats representing Believers and unbelievers sheep are the innocent and pure goats are the sinful and condemned. Jesus was both. Jesus was the sinless sacrifice that took our place. He was also the one on which God poured our wrath for sin. Christ is pictured in both ways. Paul explains this in Second Corinthians 521. Paul says the father made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That would be effectively Christ being the lamb, but also having been made the goat, deserving the wrath. Paul explains it again in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So the mercy seat of the ark is a type or a picture of Christ's propitiation in the new testament john says in first john four ten, in this is love not that we loved god but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins do you know in greek what the word propitiation actually is in greek the same greek word they translate for mercy seat so he sent his son to be the mercy seat for our sins so the mercy seat was the place where God's wrath was appeased, picturing how Christ took the wrath of God in our place. Paul says in Romans 5:9, "Much more then now having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him." Now, on the end of the mercy seat, on either end I should say of the mercy seat, you have these two cherubim with their wings outspread To cover the mercy seat. Now there's a variety of ways people have interpreted how their wings must have looked. The other thing we were told was their heads had to be pointed down looking at the mercy seat. So everyone has these bowed angel angelic forms with their wings in some manner covering the seat. It would have been in this space created under the wings and above the mercy seat and that hollow of air where the Shekinah glory of God appeared to Israel and spoke to the people. It appeared in this small space, the space of probably the size of a soccer ball, was where God's glory appeared and remained in the tabernacle. The glory of God in the Holy of Holies was the only illumination in that room, since there were no windows and no other light source in that room. So that room was completely dark, except for the light created by the Shekinah glory of God. In the world to come, the glory of God will illuminate the earth, according to Revelation 22, 5. The glory of God remained in this place until the years before the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. Ezekiel tells us in chapters 8 through 11 of a progressive movement of God's glory out of this space and away from the tabernacle entirely forever. It begins with the glory of God moving away from the Holy of Holies to rest on the threshold of the temple and as a result illuminating the whole outer court. It remained there for a time and then it moved to the entrance to the east gate where it was surrounded by real cherubim, not these ones, but real ones. Finally, Ezekiel reports it departed the temple altogether and moved briefly to the Mount of Olives before ascending and disappearing entirely. And it's never occupied the tabernacle since. These creatures attending to the Shekinah glory of God are called cherubim or in the singular cherubs. They are the highest form of spiritual creatures we see described in the heavenly realm. The Bible mentions three levels of spiritual beings, angels, seraphim and cherubim. They play different roles in the heavenly realm and they have different appearances. The angelic realm are the lowest of these orders and they are considered messengers of God. The word angel means messenger and Hebrews tells us they are sent to minister to the saints In contrast to Hallmark cards and Victoria's Secret catalogs, (laughs) angels do not have wings in Scripture. Angels are never portrayed with wings. Seraphim are the next rank above angels. They are only described in Isaiah 6. They are seen ministering to the Lord around his throne and giving him praise, and they have six wings. Finally, the highest order of spiritual creatures are cherubim. They are described in detail in Ezekiel and of course here and elsewhere in Scripture, they are always associated with appearances of God's Shekinah glory. It seems as though they are entrusted with caring for or in some other way attending to the glory of God, wherever it appears. The chief cherub was Lucifer before he fell to become Satan. Perhaps that explains why Satan was so deceived to think he could be like God since he was the closest to the Father's glory. Just as it required, by the way, someone close to Jesus to betray him, Judas. Together, the ark and the mercy seat tell an integrated story about Christ. By his death and resurrection, Christ is the giver of life. By having paid the penalty, he becomes also the source of our glory. His sacrifice appeased the wrath of God, making possible our eternal life. He is the bread of life, the manna coming down from heaven. He is the glory of God visible to us. And by his death and our faith in that atonement, we now have the possibility to be glorified as he was. All of that is told by the ark and the mercy seat. So we could say, to put it simply, that the Holy of Holies represents Jesus as the life of all men, the source of life eternally for all men. The next section describes the next piece of furniture, in the tabernacle, but we move out of the Holy of Holies now into the outer room, which is called the Holy Place, to find a piece of furniture called the table of the bread or table of the showbread or table of the presence. Chapter 25, verses 23 through 30. You shall make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long, one cubit wide and one and a half cubits high. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a gold border around it. You shall make it for a rim of... Of a hand breadth around it, and you shall make a gold border for the rim around it. You shall make four gold rings for it, and put rings on the four corners, which are its four feet. The rings shall be close to the rim as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, so that with them the table may be carried. You shall make its dishes, and its pans, and its jars, and its bowls with which to pour drink offerings, you shall make them of pure gold. You shall set the bread of the presence. On the table before me at all times. So next in the order of importance is this table of showbread or the table of the bread of the presence, it's called. The table is constructed much like the ark. It's wood, acacia wood, overlain with gold. It stood in the second chamber I mentioned, the holy place. We'll look at a diagram of it a little later. It's also quite small. It's roughly three feet by one and a half feet by a little over two feet. Again, an average size coffee table, but a very expensive one. If you were to go build one with all the gold in it, all the dishware is made of solid gold. It held a perpetual offering of bread, which the priests would replace every week. And you learn more about that process when we get into later parts of the law, specifically Leviticus. The bread was stacked in two stacks of six cakes each. And the bread was called the bread of the presence because it remained in the presence of God's glory. They look a little bit like bagels. That would probably be the right comparison, wouldn't it? At the end of each week, this old bread would have been consumed by the priests who had served in that prior week. And according to the Jewish rules, I believe the high priest got 40% and then the other priest split the rest. It was some math like that. The bread itself, of course, pictures... Christ, who is called the bread of life in John chapter six. And so the holy place is decorated by a symbol of Christ as the bread of life, referring to his life giving word. Matthew four, three. This is Jesus in the wilderness. Satan came to him and said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. And he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Notice that the only food on this table for the priests of God was this bread. No other food was provided, illustrating that the believer's spiritual diet should be the word of God exclusively. Next, we find the second item in this second chamber, the lampstand. That's in chapter 25, verses 31 through 40. Then you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand and its base and its shaft are to be made of a hammered work. Its cups, its bulbs and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. Six branches shall go out from its sides. Three branches of the lampstand from its one side and three branches of the lampstand from its other side. Three cups shall be shaped like almond blossoms in the one branch, a bulb and a flower, and three cups shaped like almond almond blossoms in the other branch, a bulb and a flower. So for six branches going out from the lampstand. And in the lampstand, four cups shaped like almond blossoms, its bulbs and its flowers. A bulb shall be under the first pair of branches coming out from it and a bulb under the second pair of branches coming out of it. And a bulb under the third pair of branches coming out of it for the six branches coming out of the lampstand. Their bulbs and their branches shall be of one piece with it. All of it shall be one piece of hammered work of pure gold. Then you shall make its lamps seven in number and they shall mount its lamps so it shed light on the space in front of it. Its snuffers and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made from a talent of pure gold with all these utensils. See that you make them after the pattern for them, which was shown to you on the mountain. So the lampstand is described in this section. It was the traditional seven branched menorah that you've seen now probably many ways, many times. Only this one was solid gold, one piece of gold weighing about 75 pounds after it was built. Not very big, just very heavy. And like the rest of what we know about the tabernacle, this one piece of furniture, we actually know to a fairly good degree what it was actually built like or how it actually appeared because there is that famous Roman arch that was built to commemorate Titus' destruction of Herod's temple. And the relief on that arch includes a depiction of the Roman army carrying the menorah out of the tabernacle. And this is what it looks like. So we have a much better understanding of what it must have looked like based on what we see in that relief. This lamp burned continuously since it was the only source of light in the holy place. Remember, this is the second chamber. The Holy of Holies was lit by God's glory. The holy place was lit by this lamp. So no natural light ever entered the tabernacle, only through these two sources. And in this you find another picture of Christ. We know Jesus is called the light of the world, By John 1, but what he means by light in that context is in the same way that Psalm 119 speaks about Jesus as the light. In Psalm 119, verse 105, Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. We know Jesus, of course, is called the Word by John as well. So what we're saying is Jesus is that light giving lamp when He is the Word of God instructing us into ways of righteousness so far in the holy place the second room we find the table of the presence and the lamp both telling a common story about Jesus both the table with the bread and the lampstand represent the word of God the word of God which is our spiritual food Sustains and grows us spiritually and the word of God is the light that illuminates our walk of holiness leading us into righteousness So in the holy place you see Jesus Christ represented as the truth the word of God And there's one additional piece of furniture, which is the Table of incense, which we will altar of incense, which you'll get to Later when it comes up in the chapter that follows The reason that you don't have the table of incense in the tent being described at this point is simply because it serves a different purpose that's not connected to Jesus as the word. It's connected to Jesus as our intercessor, which is another issue that comes up later in the design. So that's chapter 25. So we've covered so far in chapter 25, the ark, the mercy seat, the showbread table, and now the lamp. What's left, of course, is the rest of the building and three other pieces of furniture which have not been described so far. Tonight we're going to do chapter 26, which gets to the structure of the tabernacle, and we'll end after that. So let's go to chapter 26. Now I'm going to read chapter 26 in its entirety, because chapter 26 is one long description of the building, and then we're going to look at it in steps. Chapter 26. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twisted linen and blue and purple and scarlet material. You shall make them with cherubim, the work of a skilled workman the length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the width of each curtain, four cubits. All the curtains shall have the same measurements. Five curtains shall be joined to one another and the other five curtains shall be joined to one another. You shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set and likewise you shall make them on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the second set. You shall make 50 loops in the one curtain and you shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite each other And you shall make 50 clasps of gold and join the curtains to one another with the clasps so that the tabernacle will be a unit. Then you shall make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. You shall make 11 curtains in all. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits and the width of each curtain, 4 cubits. The 11 curtains shall have the same measurements. You shall join 5 curtains by themselves and the other 6 curtains by themselves and you shall double over the 6th curtain at the front of the tent. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the first set and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the second set. You shall make 50 clasps of bronze and you shall put the clasps into the loops and join the tent together so that it will be a unit. The overlapping part that is left over in the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that is left over shall lap over the back of the tabernacle, the cut, the The cubit on one side and the cubit on the other of what is left over in the length of the curtains of the tent shall lap over the sides of the tabernacle on one side and on the other to cover it. You shall make a covering for the tent of ram skins dyed red and a covering of porpoise skins above. Then you shall make the boards for the tabernacle of acacia wood standing upright. Ten cubits shall be the length of each board and one and a half cubits the width of each board. There shall be two tenons for each board fitted to one another. Thus you shall do for all the boards of the tabernacle. You shall make the boards for the tabernacle, 20 boards for the south side. You shall make 40 sockets of silver under the 20 boards, 2 sockets under one board for its two tenons and 2 sockets under another board for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, 20 boards, and there are 40 sockets of silver, 2 sockets under one board and 2 sockets under another board. For the rear of the tabernacle to the west, you shall make six boards. You shall make two boards for the corners of the tabernacle at the rear. They shall be double beneath, and together they shall be complete to its top to the first ring. Thus it shall be with both of them. They shall form the two corners. There shall be eight boards with their sockets of silver, 16 sockets, two sockets under one board and two sockets under another board. Then you shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the boards of one side of the tabernacle and five bars for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle and five bars for the boards of the side of the tabernacle for the rear to the side to the west. The middle bar in the center of the boards shall pass through from end to end. You shall overlay the boards with gold and make their rings of gold as holders for the bars and you shall overlay the bars with gold. You You shall erect the tabernacle according to its plan which you have been shown in the mountain. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. It shall be made with cherubim, the work of a skilled workman. You shall hang it on four pillars of acacia wood overlain with gold, their hooks also being of gold, on four sockets of silver. You shall hang up the veil under the clasps and shall bring in the ark of the testimony there within the veil. And the veil shall serve for you as a partition between the holy place and the holy of holies. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the holy of holies. You shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand opposite the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south. And you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the doorway of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, the work of a weaver. You shall make five pillars of acacia for the screen and overlay them with gold. Their hooks also being of gold and you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. Now, the structure is measured in cubits. A cubit is roughly 18 inches. It can vary depending on where you consult for your measurement. It was generally considered to be the length of a man's forearm, from the elbow to the tip of their hand, but that varies. So exactly how long it is is a matter of debate, roughly 18 inches. To give you an idea of just how small the tabernacle was, here are the dimensions. It was 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, 15 feet high. The Holy of Holies was only 15 cubic feet, about the size of an average bedroom. If you were to take this structure and put it into the space of a modern car parking lot, you would find that it fits in the space marked off by four parking spaces back to back. The entire structure is accessed through a single door, which is a type of Christ as well. John 10:9. I am the door, Jesus says. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The entire structure, we were told, rests on sockets or silver bases that prop up all the wood boards that make up the wall of the tabernacle. So these silver sockets are the foundation of the tabernacle. There were 100 sockets in total around the perimeter of the tabernacle. They weighed each about 100 pounds, that's 10,000 pounds of silver or five tons of silver holding up the boards and creating a foundation. The boards themselves, we were told, had tenons or protruding pegs that then fit into the silver and that's how they stood upright and were held in place on the silver, The silver is collected, and we don't read about it being collected from the Israelites until chapter 30 of Exodus. The amount collected per person was a very modest sum, and it was said to be the same amount no matter who was poor or rich. Everyone had to give the same amount. Everyone had to give something, but when all of Israel had contributed, they had found themselves possessing five tons of silver for the building of the tabernacle. Here's what was commanded in Exodus 30, verse 12. When you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them so that there will be no plague among them when you number them. This is what everyone who is numbered shall give. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 garas. Half a shekel as a contribution to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered from 20 years up, And over shall give the contribution to the Lord, the rich shall not pay more and the poor shall not pay less than the half shekel, which when you give the contribution to the Lord to make atonement for yourselves, you shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting that it may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. God says in Exodus 30, which, of course, we will get to again later. But for tonight, it's important to understand what the meaning of the silver is. God said that any time you number my people, that census must be conducted in conjunction with the taking of atonement money from everyone who is numbered. Before anyone can be numbered as among God's people, an atonement must be made. A price must be paid for that person. Each person must pay that atonement price. No one can pay the price for someone else. And the silver is called the atonement in Exodus chapter 30. So the tabernacle rests on silver, which pictures the atoning work of Christ's blood by which we can be called God's people. 1 Peter one, eighteen and 19, he says, Knowing this, that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers but with precious blood of a lamb unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ why do you think peter refers to not being redeemed with silver he's referring to the tradition of israel in the law you weren't redeemed in that way you were redeemed through the blood of christ paul completes our picture when he teaches in 1 corinthians 3:11 No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There's an interesting story you may remember out of David's time when he numbered his men without taking a contribution, without taking the atonement money. And because he numbered them without taking the requisite atonement that goes with the numbering, then God's wrath was poured out and many men died as a result. It's often mistaught. We often hear it taught as a Failure of David to have faith and his counting of his numbers was an evidence that he didn't have faith God could bring him victory unless he had enough men. That's wrong. That has no relevance to the story. The purpose in God's wrath was if you're going to take my picture of atonement and misuse it, then my wrath will be poured out. The numbering of God's people is made possible by an atonement which lets us be one of God's people. You cannot be counted as gods without the requisite atonement being made for you. And that is made through Christ, obviously. The walls of this building were boards held together with five wooden rods covered with gold running horizontally through loops to hold the boards together. This is actually a better view of it. The boards were made of acacia wood, and acacia wood is a desert tree that's known, especially known, for being resistant to decay, even in the harsh temperatures and climate of the desert. On top of the wood... Laid pure gold. And when you consider that the walls were solid wood on three sides, all of that wood overlain with gold, lit up by a gold flame from a gold lampstand, the inside would have been a highly reflective, mirror like gold color. It's just all gold. This construction of wood with gold overlain is also an illustration of Christ. And if you've noticed, all the furniture, for the most part, had this same pattern as well. The wood, the acacia wood, represents Jesus' fleshly body, earthly body. It was born of the earth, out of the ground. Isaiah 53 says this, Isaiah 53, 2 For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. And when Jesus died, his earthly body did not decay like the acacia wood, which was resistant to decay. Psalm 1610, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. But these wood boards were overlaid with pure gold and gold in scripture symbolizes divinity. And that means that you have the covering of gold over the humanity of Christ as represented in the wood, illustrating how Jesus was both a man of flesh, but also holy God in one. Surrounding the outside walls were ten curtains of woven linen that were connected together to form a single unit that surrounded the walls, draping down the sides From the outside, they had three colors, blue, purple and scarlet woven into this linen curtain. And then also there were images of cherubim in the fabric. Remember, the cherubim are always associated with protecting God's glory. The colors are said to stand for the heavenly origin of Christ in the blue, the royal authority of Christ in the purple, the blood of his atonement in the red. There's no typology given in the New Testament of that. It's just assumed illustration. Those curtains covered the gold boards. They also came across the top and formed the ceiling. So this this one group of 10 linen curtains formed the ceiling and the outer wall coverings of the entire structure across the top. Then of these of this linen were draped three additional layers of material to create the final roof. The second layer was woven goat hair. Now, Goat hair symbolizes the sin offering of Christ on the cross. Goats do in general. The next layer was ram skin dyed red. Being red in this case would be a reminder of the Day of Atonement and the sacrificial death of Christ, the red blood of Christ being spilled. All of these things could be read into that. The outermost layer was porpoise skin. Some of your Bibles may say badger skin. The right word is actually porpoise or sea cow is another way it could have been translated. We're referring to the porpoise skin. Very hard, durable and waterproof. Where do you think they would have obtained this material? Porpoises are found in both the Nile and the Red Sea. And so Egypt would have had a ready supply of them, and this is part of what they left Egypt with. But these skins are primarily the leather that was used to make shoes because they were incredibly durable. What's interesting is God asked Israel to take all of their shoe leather and give it to his home, and then in return, God made sure their shoes didn't wear out in 40 years of wandering in the desert. In this last layer This porpoise skin layer, you find an illustration of Christ that's particularly interesting. Porpoise skin is not very attractive, not particularly luxurious, doesn't denote value to most people. It's sort of average, commoner kind of of material, very important, but still not very attractive. And Christ was said to be, externally speaking, not particularly attractive. In Isaiah 53, 2 again, it says he grew up before him like a tender shoot. And like a root out of parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was purposely put in a container, a human form in which there was nothing physically about him to attract us to him, that you would not be able to let that be the thing that draws you to Christ and the tabernacle from its outward appearance were you never to walk in it would seem a very plain building indeed. And it was small because those curtains draped down the outside. People never got to see what the priests got to see. Another illustration of Christ in this tabernacle. Unless you become a priest of God, you cannot see and understand the finer things of God. All believers are priests, according to the New Testament. Therefore, all believers have been granted access to the holy place and to know the things freely given of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.12, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. We are able to enter into a space that only comes by faith, and through entry, know things that can only be known by faith. To the rest of the world, the gospel is foolishness, and to the rest of the world, the tabernacle of Israel look like a very unstately building from the outside. Finally, there was a veil constructed. This veil that was constructed on the inside separated the Holy of Holies from the Holy Place. It was made of the same three material of curtains that was used for the ceiling and for the first layer on the outside, also decorated with cherubim. It hung on a center wall constructed of four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. This design, by the way, made it impossible for anyone to take the Ark of the Covenant out of the Holy of Holies without dismantling the tabernacle first. The veil, of course, is a picture of Christ from the New Testament. Hebrews teaches us that the veil was a partition between God and man, signifying that the way to God had not yet been revealed to men as long as this veil stood. But once Christ came and died, his atonement made that way available to everyone. And so the veil was done away with. Hebrews 9, 8, we've already read, but Hebrews ten nineteen says this. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. So the veil is a picture of the flesh of Christ until his flesh was torn for our sake. Access to the holy of holies was not available to the world. This was signifying that. But when Christ died, as you probably know from the Gospels, the veil was rent from top to bottom, obviously signifying that it was done by the work of God reaching down to make possible the entrance of men. It was not done by men's work reaching up to find God. So the entry past the outer wall of the tabernacle symbolizes the entrance or the way into God, that there is an entrance or a manner, a way to find God. And it is through a specific provision God has made in Jesus. But until you walk in through that way, what is of God, what is available is obscured. It is unreachable. It is unknown until you go in through that way. So when we stand back and we look at the construction of the tabernacle, you find these three parts equating to three qualities in Christ. This represents the building, the holy place and the the furniture that's in it. Another piece of furniture outside it, which we haven't talked about yet. And then the holy of holies with the mercy seat on top of the ark. We've already said that as you come in through that doorway or that entrance, you have your way to God. And that, of course, that one door represents Christ. So you enter only by the Son of God. And in entering, you find Christ, the word. And by pursuing past that, you find Christ giving eternal life. So Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. He was describing the three elements of the tabernacle, the three divisions of the tabernacle, as he was talking of himself. We're done for tonight. Next week we'll go into chapters 27 and 28. We'll look more at the furniture again and at the priestly garments that they wore when they served in the tabernacle. Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for all those pictures and illustrations and the way in which you've constructed the meaning of the tabernacle so that we cannot miss. That Christ is the way and the truth and the life. And for those of us, Father, who rest in Him now by faith, it seems so clear and it is such a glorious truth. And we celebrate the way you have brought us in through faith to become a part of such a special thing, Father, the story of Christ and His work on our behalf. But we also recognize, Father, it is veiled to those who have not yet come to know the Lord as as Lord. And so, Father, What we've learned tonight and all these rich details, I pray they would become useful tools for us in conversation with others so that they might see the majesty and the wisdom and the sovereignty of God at work in these details and recognize that it's not chance, it's not coincidence, and therefore it must be true and it is compelling. Let us have that opportunity. Let us continue to meditate on what we've learned and bring us back next week, Father, to continue in this wonderful book. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.